Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 64. So if you haven't opened your Bibles yet to that passage, please do so and follow along with us. But this is a time where you see David yet again on the run. And that's no surprise to you if you've been following along with the Psalms for quite a bit at this juncture with me preaching, but also if you've just simply read them. What you'll find about this psalm is that we don't really know much about the historical occasion of it, meaning we don't know the details of why David is on the run in terms of who's following him, when this is in his life, but we do, in fact, get a rather detailed description of his enemies at this time. They are cunning men. They're incredibly smart men who use their tongues to destroy They're looking to do so from the shelter of secrecy. So you could even add to that there might be a little bit of cowardness, but in reality, they're actually just all the smarter because they don't want to be seen before the eyes of men with it. And what they do is they use their words to spread discord and strife among the people of Israel, but also to simply scheme against King David. And while many would tell you today that words can't bring destruction, what this psalm shows us is that that is a patently false idea. Excuse me. If you were to look at the book of Proverbs, you would see this reality on full display as well, because it says how the tongue can be destructive, both for the fool who does not know how to guard his speech, but also the one who runs across the fool. Proverbs 13.3 says the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips come to ruin. Proverbs 16.27 says a worthless man digs up evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. You come across Proverbs 18.21, and it tells us that even the power of life and death are in the tongue. It is utterly destructive when it is unbridled. Now, you come to the New Testament, and you go to a book like James, and you can see this in even greater detail, can't you? We think of the tongue as something that can't cause all that much damage, and that old adage has always been on the playground, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never do what? Hurt me. That's a bold-faced lie. The reality As James would put it, as he says, oh no, that little tongue of yours is an arsonist. See how easily it sets a great forest aflame and burns it down to the ground. It is full of restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. It is a world of iniquity that defiles the entire body and even sets the course of your life aflame with the fires of hell. That's how James describes the tongue. And he says, who among you can tame it? Now, you see it in our world today, though, when the internet lynch mob gathers around its next victim and tries to cancel them, don't you? But you've seen it all along in the past as well. Entire civilizations have been wiped off the face of the earth simply due to the power of a single mouth. Arguably, you could look at the whole of the human race and say that they have plunged under the weight of sin and death from the destruction of a single tongue. The unique thing about this psalm, though, is that David looks at these men who were destructive in their speech, they are liars, and they actually embody a living example of the words of Christ as he rebuked the Pharisees in their lies. Now, speaking of these Pharisees, Christ even said, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. 
There's nothing hidden that will not be known. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, meaning it'll come to light no matter what. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. In other words, whatever you say and do in secret will be brought to witness. Nothing that is hidden from the eyes of men will remain hidden. Why? God exposes it. But Christ did not end it here, did he? He continued in the midst of this discourse, and he looked at the Pharisees, he looked at his own disciples and said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And Christ didn't deny that people might kill you. In fact, he conceded as much in the text, did he not? He acknowledges the fact of that when, with what he says, but his point here is that there is one who is greater than all of these different men that you need to fear, and that is God. The reason why is radically simple. There is a day of judgment coming, and we are either safe from that wrath that is to come, or we are not. And so it makes no difference in the world, in one sense, if wicked men are scheming after you. That is, in essence, what Christ taught, but that is, in essence, the point of the psalm as well. David has many enemies that are plotting and scheming against him, but there is a judgment swiftly coming for them. God will bring them down to the ground, but more than this, he actually says that God's going to make a living example of them. He's going to judge them before the watching eyes of all these other wicked people, and they will see it, and they will be either one who staggers under the weight of this judgment like a drunk man, They'll be utterly afraid, or they'll be like the righteous who turn in confidence and faith and trust in God all the more for his goodness and grace. But every single person will see the judgment of God. That's what he's saying in the psalm. Every last one of them will behold it. What David instructs us then in light of that reality is that there are four unavoidable results of God's judgment. The first result of God's judgment is that the righteous will be ensconced, or rather encapsulated or covered, if you will, by God. The second is that the reprobate will be exposed. The third is that God's retribution will be exhibited or shown. The fourth and final result then is that God's righteousness will be extolled or praised. Now look with me now at verse 1 and we start to see the beginning results of God's judgment. Notice how he begins this psalm. David begins by crying out to God, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaints. It's this urgent cry that God would hear his prayer. And the idea is not that God would passively hear him, but that God will actually hear his prayers and be moved to act on the basis of his complaints. So that might seem like an overly simplistic observation to you, but the reason David actually cries out to God in the very first place is he believes God will act. Right? He believes God will actually have the ability to do something about it. It carries this freight of possibilities, or rather implicit beliefs about this God whom he serves. He knows that God sees the injustice of what's being done to him. He knows that God has promised to punish the wicked, but he also believes God is sovereign. God has the ability, not just the desire, but also the ability to actually judge evil. And one great day he will do so. But notice, his cry for help is not for immediate deliverance from his enemies. Look down at the text and see this. Verses 1 and 2, he actually gives very specific shape to his prayers. He says, preserve my life from what? Not from the enemy, but from the dread of the enemy. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy and hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity. 
So notice first, David's request is not to preserve his life in general, right? That comes second, but he has a question or a desire rather to have his life preserved from the dread of his enemies. It's very specific to what they can do in particular, but it is nonetheless a fear. But David innately recognizes, right? He has good reason to be afraid. These aren't just ordinary detractors or complainers, but he doesn't want to be paralyzed by this fear. He has a working theology, in other words, that demands he not be afraid of mere mortal men, but that he fear the one who can cast both body into hell, into soul. Or rather, gosh, forgive me. That's how I'm going to speak the rest of the sermon, apparently. Body and soul into hell. That's what David is looking at and saying, I need not fear these ordinary men. Even though they are dastardly, even though they can do all sorts of different things to me, I have no need to fear them. But notice his next request here in verse 2. David asks that God would hide him from their conspiracies and the tumult of the wicked. So already you start to get a very vivid description of what these men are actually capable of. Right? On the one hand, there are conspiracies. Right, So you know what a conspiracy is. It's this plan behind the scenes to stir up people against him. So on the one hand, there's this uproarious, frenzied mob, and they want to overthrow the king. They want him dead. And yet David's not foolish enough to believe this is just some unorganized chaos, if you will. Right? There is a cold and calculated plot behind the scenes of men who want to see him out of the throne. That violent mob that might stand and orchestrate all sorts of different things, it's not just a violent mob, but there are people behind the scenes of even that because it is a conspiracy. They have their own nefarious intent. They have their own agenda. And all the while, they know exactly how to rile up the lemmings and get them to bid out or carry out their plans. And so these are very, very intelligent people that are running the show. It reminds me much of how we see things work in our own day and age. I hate conspiracies. I I hate conspiracy theories. But one of the things you cannot deny is that there are some very powerful people and very rich people who are able to affect things in our world with the greatest of ease. One of the things we saw in our own town with the riots is that you had people literally coming in from all over the country who did not live here. They did not have money in the bank, but they were extremely well-funded. They were well-organized. And what did they do but burn down the city within minutes in many ways? That's, in essence, what David is looking at here. It's a fairly good illustration of that reality that though there might be people who come in and seem as if they are on their own, there are many, many behind the scenes kind of pulling the strings and getting them to do exactly what they want. But notice, he doesn't just describe these men as secret plotters or rabble-rousers. David calls them evildoers and workers of iniquity. If you look down, you can see it right in verse 2, right? They are evildoers and workers of iniquity. And these are very, very broad terms, but it speaks to a reality of who they are as a whole. This is what defines them. This is what defines what they do. It's ingrained within their very nature to seek out evil devices and then use them against innocent people. And he says that's exactly who they are. Now, you'll see this in greater detail when we get to the very next section, but I want you to notice David's request is it actually a very simple one. Preserve my life from the fear of my enemies, from the dread of my enemies, right? That's one. Hide me from their evil plots and actions. In other words, do not let me be afraid of those who can kill the body. Do not let me fear them, Lord. They cannot kill both body and soul. Let me hide myself in thee. Understand, though, what David does is he takes refuge in the only place he knows is actually fully safe from the wicked. 
He believes God has the ability to conceal him and hide him in a secure place, and that is God. But the thing that David is going to show you throughout the rest of this psalm is that comfort, that joy, that safety and security does not come without the righteous judgment of God on the evildoer. In other words, God being a safe place of refuge for David must pour out in his wrath upon the wicked doer. That is the reality of judgment. That is the reality of God's righteousness. God will uphold and protect the righteous, but he will cast down and destroy the wicked. And so what it means is that God is decisively not a safe place for the wicked. He will never be a safe place to them unless they repent and believe. And this is a testimony of Scripture all over the place, beloved. Psalm 46 gives us this reality. It gives a clear depiction of it. We don't have time to get into that passage today, but you can listen to a sermon I did on that a while back. But the point of that psalm is whatever your fears may be derived from in this life, whether it's by the hand of men, whether it's natural disaster, he says, whatever your fears may be, God is a very present help in times of your distress or your trouble. He is the sovereign one over all, and therefore you have reason to take comfort. When that psalm concludes, though, it has a radically different tone to it. It dials in on the judgment of God, and it shows that at the end of all days, what happens is that it will be God and God alone who is exalted over the nations. He says, the kingdoms raise their voice, but he utters a word and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. He raises his voice and the earth melts. This is the sovereign one over all. And the call to the nations, the ones who are raging, as he says, cease striving and know that I am God. In other words, stop. You want to wage war against my people? Understand, I am to them the God of Jacob, the God of the heavenly hosts of all the armies. Know that I am this God. You get to Psalm 2 and it shows much the same reality. He talks about the nations who rage against God's anointed one, the one we know is Jesus Christ, but God merely sits enthroned in the heavens and he laughs at them. That is what God does. He mocks them. He knows their end is set. He says, you want to rage against my Holy One? Great. Understand though, I scoff, I deride you. The call to the wicked in Psalm 2 is much the same as it is in Psalm 46 and even this Psalm. It says, kiss the sun lest ye perish in the way. Pay homage to him. Worship him. And so the abundant testimony of Scripture is just this. Everything in history has been hurtling towards this great and terrible day of judgment, the day we call the day of wrath. And for the people of God who by repentance and faith trust in Jesus Christ, this is an actual thing of immense comfort to them. In the end, God wins over evil. God triumphs. Hear that. God triumphs over evil. What that means is whether you live or die, the Lord reigns over all the earth and that God will do what he has always set out to do and no amount of evil purposes can stop him. Think of this in light of all the different things that happen in our country today. Right? You can make the case that people are pulling the strings behind the scenes. You can look at the constant fear-mongering that is going on. You can look at all the different things that people are doing to try and take you and put you in a place of utter terror and dread all day and get you to trust in something other than God himself. 
There is rampant authoritarianism. There are bold-faced lies. There's corruption from virtually every corner of the globe. And the thing they want you to do is fear. But they do not want you to fear the one who can cast both body and soul to hell. What they want you to fear is man. And if you think you're immune to this, I've got news for you. You can fear or be afraid in a number of different ways. You can fear man and do everything they ask you to do, all with the hopes that they will look over you and see that you are a devotee of them. They'll let you off the hook. Or you could be the one who's pulling back from it all. You're the homesteader, the doomsday prepper, the financial savant, where you've got your money in the bank for the day everything hits the fan. Anything else you would like to be. But at the end of all days, the reality is that a fear-based reaction that swings to the opposite side of the pendulum It's just as bad because it's not looking at God himself and saying, you are my refuge. You are my hiding place. It is always looking to something else or someone else. Beloved, if your life and death are in his hands, if that is your consolation, there is no better place to be in all the world than safe in his hands. You need not dread what man may do. The gist of it is you can trust your father. You can trust him. He cares for you. You can trust that he will protect you, that no cunning ingenuity of man can outsmart him, that the sovereign one who sees all and knows all things will bring all hidden things to light. There is nothing that escapes his gaze. That is ultimately what we find in this psalm as we get to the second part of it here in verses 3 through 8. The reprobate will be exposed, right? Look at what he does to these men. David, in talking of these men, saying, they have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, we are ready with a well-conceived plot. For the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. Now notice what he does throughout that whole sampling of what he shows these men capable of doing. All he's doing is just revealing their character. You start to see it in verse 3. Look at how they use their words to maximize the destruction that they can do. Notice the different ways he shows their preferred weapon of war is their tongue. He says they sharpen their tongues like a sword, right? So there is intent, there's forethought in how they can pierce the very depths of the soul for the person. And many of you have dealt with people like this. They use words carefully crafted purely to wound you. They know just where to stick the blade and to twist the knife so they can do so with a few rightly placed words. But notice their speech goes beyond even this. He says, the next image is of an archer, right? Preparing the bow. He's stepping into it and drawing the string over the bow, but it's laced with bitter arrows. And the point that he's using here, the specific root word even for the bitterness, carries the idea much like putrid, acrid bile from your stomach right as you're about to throw up. So the stuff you pull out when you can't get anything else out, that's what he's saying is it's laced with. But it also has this wasting effect. It literally will rot the bones from out, the inside out. The depth of the poison of their words is just utterly terrible. And at the heart of their speech is this cruel, profound hatred that is ultimately just set on David's destruction. And that's his his big point here. In every which way they speak, all they have in mind is how they can use their tongue to be destructive, how they can use their tongue for evil and for sin. They want to tear him down to the lowest of low 
So they could do it through vicious slander and gossip. They could do it through lies and deception. They could do it through stirring up a crowd to just simply go towards bloodshed. In every which way, they use their tongue to wound. In all in all, it's not so hard to see why the New Testament writers are so keen on identifying these sins of the tongue. Right? It's no wonder why the apostles will draw the sins of lying and slander and gossip and divisiveness and backbiting, all the sins of the tongue, in other words, and why they put it on par with sexual immorality and murder and witchcraft and all things like that. It should not shock us, in other words, to see that this is a reality. And the simple reality is that David's identifying this type of speech has no place here. These are utterly wicked men. All they're trying to do is destroy and kill and maim. And it goes without saying that this should have no place in the church. If you are the man or woman who is given to this type of speech, you need to know this is what David calls a worker of iniquity. This is the identifying mark. Literally, one who is using their tongue to destroy But notice he just continues in verse 4, right? What does he say in verse 4? They shoot from concealment at the blameless. They hide under the guise of secrecy. They're from the shadows. And the implication that he draws out here is not only do they hide, but they strike their target unaware. They draw back the bow. They let the arrow fly. They let it sink into the very heart of their victim. But all the while, that victim then staggers and falls and dies without even knowing where he was struck from. The whole point of it is that they're doing it in anonymity, and yet their their victims are innocent. The idea that David's drawing towards is not that he's free from sin. He knows exactly who he is. He knows he's a sinner, but he also knows that he is a man who lives in such a way as if he's going to honor God and that the attacks are completely unwarranted. In other words, he's done nothing to deserve their attacks. And he says that these innocent ones have also done nothing It's not on the basis of their own personal sin. It's not retaliation. It's not discipline. In every aspect, he looks at it and says, we've done nothing to deserve this. But then look at how he continues. All of this, he's drawing to a point here in verse 4 and 5. All of this is a revelation of their own heart. Notice what he says at the end of verse 4. They do not fear. They do not fear. Now, the context of their lack of fear may be a little bit difficult to flesh out, but the reality that it's likely speaking towards is that they don't care about what's going to happen next. They don't fear reprisal. They don't fear consequence for their actions. They don't fear God. They don't fear man. Not at least what man can do to them. The reason why is because they're wicked. They could do something worse. That's how they think. The reality, though, is that they look at God and his law and they have no fear of God before their eyes. And that's why they do what they do. They know what's right. They know it's sin. They know it's wickedness. They know that it's evil. But they do it anyways. They look at the judge of all the earth and they say, we're going to do our own thing. You can't even see it. In either case, they're set on using whatever means they can to destroy. They have no concern over what they're doing whatsoever. And all this does is then just bleed into the very next section in verse 5. Look down, you can see it. He says, They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, and they say, Who can see them? Who can see them? All David is doing is speaking of their conspiracies against him here, right? 
but they're strengthening themselves in the height of hubris or pride. Some of your Bibles will say that they are holding fast or encouraging one another in their evil purposes, but the way that the Hebrew breaks out here is it's showing the idea of them growing stronger and stronger and stronger until they prevail over the innocent. So all the while, all they're doing is laying their best laid traps and plans and strategizing. They're looking for every contingency, every outcome, all so they can firm things up and bring him to the ground. That's what they're doing. They're strengthening themselves and encouraging each other all the while. And all you can do is see their pride and their confidence as they lay their traps and they're saying, who can see it? Who has eyes to see? None of these men certainly will. David's going to fall right into it. But they also can look at it and say, God himself is unaware of what we're doing. You see it no more clearly than even in verse 6. Look at what David says next. He says that they search out ways of unrighteousness, or as the Nazbi would put it, they devise injustices. And the word here literally speaks of cruel malice, literally that intent to cause serious bodily harm and delight in his suffering. So every which way they're looking at him, and you can picture these men secretly plotting all the ways they can torture him, all so that way they can bring a smile to their own faces. Physically, mentally, spiritually, in every way, they're searching out the depths of injustice, the depths of wickedness is what he's saying. And at the end of their search, what do they do? But they say, we have searched well. We have discovered exactly what we wanted to discover. They slap each other on the back, say, job well done. And then they start to put their plans into motion. No one will know. No one can see them. God himself cannot see. For we have searched the depths of wickedness. And David then just looks at all of this and he gives a summary statement at the very end of verse 6. He looks to the extent of their hearts and it's an anomaly to him. He cannot understand how they can possibly think and do the things they do. But notice what the summary statement says. It's not just of these men, but men in general. He says, for the inward thought and the heart of of a man, not these men, but of a man, are deep. The inward thoughts and hearts of men, he says, the very source from which all these different evil plans were inspired are unsearchable to me. I cannot fathom it. He looks to the inward stature of a man. He says, I don't get it. It's very much like Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick. And then he concludes with the question, who can understand it? And I ask you the same question. Who among you today can understand the depths of wickedness in the heart? It's a statement that describes the entire problem of mankind in a nutshell. The heart is unknowable to you and I. The depths of the heart are unfathomable. If you think the Marianas Trench is deep, wait until you try and search out the heart of a man. Try and think of your own heart at this time. Can you plumb the depths of your heart and weigh through your motivations to see, are they pure? Are they righteous? Are they fully honoring God? See if you can do it. Look to the person next to you, be it your spouse or your kids or your friends, whoever they may be. Can you search out their heart? Can you plumb the depths of what they are thinking? why they do the things that they do. Can you cut both through joint and marrow and search out the thoughts and the intentions of the heart? 
That's what David's doing here. That's what he's saying. I, I literally can't do it. And do you ever wonder at times why you scratch your head at the things going on in this world? When you look around you and all you see is rampant evil and you have no idea why people are doing the things they do or thinking the way they think, even though you know the scriptures, you know the answer, right? You know that men are evil, but yet you look out and you see all of it and you're like, what in the world are they doing? How could anybody possibly think like this? Right? I do that all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm bombarded with things all the time. I still, for the life of me, cannot figure out why this generation of all generations before it thinks that they've stumbled onto some miraculous truth where they, among all people, can mutilate the bodies of children and reassign their genders at whim. I literally cannot get that. I cannot fathom why 200,000 plus babies every single day are slaughtered in their mother's womb. Every day. I cannot fathom that. I see news stories of utter debauchery, and I know I should not be shocked. None of this should surprise me. <laughs> Yet I'm shocked almost every time. The depths of the heart of man is incredible. And from out of that springs everything else, right? I know men are literally inventing new ways of doing evil all the time. And yet when I see that evil invented, I am utterly flabbergasted. But what I also can't comprehend is the child who gets caught in a lie and still refuses to tell the truth. Think about that. I mean, you know it, they know it, everybody around knows it. And yet what they do is they don't tell the truth suddenly and have a strike of conscience. They double down in the lie. I can't fathom why I do that sometimes. I can't fathom the depths of sin in my own heart. I can't understand the husband who does not want to lead his home, the wife who does not want to follow. I cannot understand, even on the best days, why I gravitate towards a sin in me that I despise with all of my heart. And yet, here I go. That is the condition of the heart. That is the depth of its wickedness. Even after you've come to Christ, you still have the propensity to do some of the dumbest things in the world, don't you? Some of the things that you despise and hate. The level of evil within the heart of man is unsearchable to everyone else around you, except for God. And that's the point he's drawing towards here. Whatever you and I might scratch our heads at, whatever David would scratch his head at, God does not. He is not shocked. He's not surprised when it happens. He's not caught off guard. As if all of a sudden, he's like, well, you've screwed everything up now. Look at what he says in verses 7 through 8. This is where it starts to get very, very serious in the psalm. Right, David is perplexed. He says, I don't know what the heck they're doing, but God will shoot at them with the arrow. And suddenly they will be wounded. And so they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake the head. The tone of the psalm changes rather radically in an instant, doesn't it? God judges these men by their own devices and he looks, he sees the intentions of the heart. 
He sees the very unsearchableness of the heart that you and I deal with. And behind the scenes, God has already taken note. Right? He has seen it all the while. This is just merely the showcasing of his judgment that was already done. He looked at these men and he judged them in their sin. And this is just merely the time it carries out. Everything leading up to that point was a precursor where God saw and God noted and God took it into his mind to pour out his wrath upon them. And this is just simply the time that happens. I think about this. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so I ask the simple question, how much more so the God who gave us his word? Will he not pierce through the innermost part of our hearts and discern the very intent of our thoughts? The intent of your thoughts, that thing before, it's even a fully formed thought, the intent of it. He sees and he knows and he exposes it. God has discerned it. He has weighted against his law. He knows whether it's good or evil. He knows what your motivations are, whether or not you even bother to consider if it will please him. And as God pierces through to the place where you and I so desperately do not want anyone to see, what does he find? According to Mark 7.21, from the heart of man, God finds evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality and envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That's what he sees in the heart. Even that's not it, though. There's more. Our own hearts betray about us. God pierces beyond and sees even more. Romans 3, right? God finds none who are righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks for God, no one who does good. He says all of them are liars. All of them are liars whose lips hide the venom of snakes and whose tongue wags with the cursing and bitterness. In short, he says, they have no fear of God before their eyes. That is the heart. That is what lay inside the heart of every last one of you in your natural state. That is what God discerns of the men in this psalm. But you and me and everyone else you know, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so what was a mystery to David becomes radically clear, doesn't it? but it becomes radically clear with a warning. Anyone who foolishly thinks they can pull the wool over God's eyes and keep their evil deeds hidden from him, he will expose. Notice what he is doing here. This is a sure case of proverbial justice. The deeds return upon their heads, right? Notice the flow of this from the text. Look down at verse three. Suddenly they shoot their arrows at the blameless, and then in verse 7, look, God will suddenly shoot but one single arrow, for he never misses the mark. And suddenly they are mortally wounded. Verse 3 again, go back to it. They sharpen their tongues like swords. Verse 8, their own tongues are now against them. Verse 2, they secretly plot evil. Then again in verse 9, God reveals their sin to everyone. Everything will be exposed. Everything brought into the light. 
So it must be said, if nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then nothing can separate you or hide you from the penetrating gaze of the God who searches all things and knows all things and judges all things. God will bring everything hidden to light and he will expose it before the eyes of the watching world. That's what he's saying here. The result of God's judgment inevitably is just a revelation It's a revealing, and the psalmist makes it clear at the end of verse 8. You can see it. Look down. All who see them will shake the head. They'll shake the head. The Hebrew is notoriously difficult to convey what it means in the English, but that's why some of your translations render that phrase a little bit differently. But the sense of what he means is that everybody will witness it that's in that area, and they will stagger like a drunk man as they see the judgment of God take place. They are going to be confused, astonished over the swift and merciless reversal of what happens in God's judgment. And they will be sent reeling over the sight of it. Think of what Christ says, right? He depicts his coming day of wrath in Luke 17. And he talks about it like this. He says, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And then he picks back up again. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Those are the words of Christ. In other words, he said, every day leading up into the days of Noah and the days of Lot, there was a judgment coming. Every day things hastened towards that judgment. And it was just any old ordinary day until it was not. It will be the same for those who live to see the judgment of God poured out on the earth when Christ returns. They will rise in the morning and eat their breakfast. They'll get up and kiss the wife and kids goodbye. They'll head into the office for work. They will finally get around to that honeydew list. They'll go to the dentist and get their teeth cleaned. They'll pack their bags for that long-awaited vacation. Budding families will be just getting started Everyone will have their plans and dreams for the future. Everything will be perfectly normal. Normal until, just like that day, the first drop of rain fell before Noah and the ark, the Son of Man will appear in the clouds in all his glory and judge the living and the dead. Everything at that moment will be done. And that's how swiftly it will come. When that day comes, you will find a multitude who are shocked and they will stagger like a drunk man under the weight of judgment as God just simply reveals the deeds of darkness they had done. And it will be an utterly terrifying thing as he tramples the winepress of his wrath. Just like in Noah's day, just like in Lot's day, just like in the day of these conspirators where their deeds were shown before everyone, there has been this continual warning of that day to come You have had prophets and you have had evangelists, you've had pastors, you've had ordinary Christians all telling you about the gospel. 
all telling everyone about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our world, in our first or 21st century modern day America, no one has an excuse, beloved. Everyone has heard the gospel here. Everyone. There have been warnings and warnings and warnings of that wrath to come. There have been pleadings with people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's been preached even from this pulpit week in and week out in some capacity, so that all who come, all who hear, will not have excuse. And at the drop of a hat, wrath will come. If you are not in Christ and you are here today, let it be known that this is one of those very times where you are faced yet again with a dilemma, with a choice. Do I hear and believe or do I hear and reject? But the altogether sobering reality of this psalm is that it depicts judgment before that great and terrible day. Just in case you were tempted to think that you can delay, you can wait, because that's how our minds always think, don't they? We always think we'll put it off. Not so with this psalm. In other words, it tells you you don't have to be part of that generation that sees the return of Jesus Christ to experience the wrath of God. It can happen again in the blink of an eye. You're not guaranteed to make it to an old age. You're not guaranteed more time. You're not guaranteed to live the time as you see it, to repent in your own time, your own terms, and in your own way. At any moment, every last one of you can be given that grand subpoena, that grand summons before the judge of all the earth. And the question is, are you safe in Jesus Christ or are you not? Many of you know people that have died. I'll put it this way. Make no mistakes, the very moment that they died, they stood before the judge. They stood before their maker and had to give an account for every detail of their lives. They stood before the sovereign one. Some of you know they did not trust in Jesus Christ. Perhaps they said they did, but it was nothing more than a get-out-of-jail-free card for them. But there is one outcome guaranteed at the end of our lives. There is one thing that you and I must consider, one thing that all mankind must consider. Their deeds were exposed before the Father. And if they did not trust in Christ, he consumed them in his wrath under the pure gaze of his righteousness. But if you are honest, you know there's a couple more verses of the psalm, a couple more things to consider, a couple more things that we must take to heart. There are certain unavoidable realities surrounding the judgment of God that David makes clear here, two of which you've already seen. But the third, which we now turn our attention to, is that God's retribution will be exhibited. It will be shown, in other words. And when it is shown to the watching world, when it is seen even to you and I, he says we must take it to heart. We must consider it. Verse 9. Taking off the cuffs of all these different things he's described in terms of their sudden judgment, he says, Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God. And consider what he has done. Look at the inevitable result of God's judgment. It's one of the very first words. They fear. They're afraid. 
If you recall, these are the same men who operated without any fear in verse 4. All of a sudden, things got very, very real, didn't they? They've seen the judgment of God firsthand and they are moved to dread. And now it's not all that difficult to consider why they might be moved to fear in seeing God's judgment, right? These are their friends. These are their comrades, if you will. The very same men they met with in secret to conspire against King David are dead. They've seen it first with their eyes. Their best laid plans, their scheming all came to a very abrupt end. And you see this kind of example all throughout Scripture as well. I think of Haman, again, in the book of Esther. Right? All the while, he's plotting to overthrow Mordecai. He hates Mordecai. All the while, he's plotting to overthrow the Jews. And as he seemingly finds everything kind of lining up in a good way for him, he's thinking, great, I'm going to be the king's right-hand man. What happens, but through a series of insignificant events, not so insignificant, of course, is that Haman decides he's going to build a gallows and hang Mordecai on them. And yet what happens at the very end of it is that Haman gets hanged. And then his sons get hanged. And if you think that the people didn't see that and fear, I got another thing coming for you. It tells us they take up the swords, being the Jews, because they got another edict from Ahasuerus where they could go and defend themselves. And as they went around and slaughtered people, weak, insignificant, little Jewish people, if you think that the people did not fear and understand that this was God's work, again, another thing coming. When the wicked see the judgment of other wicked people, they have to come face to face with that reality. That's what David's describing here in verse 9. He says, in essence, they are afraid. They will declare. They're confronted with their own sin, the very righteous judgment of God, and they are moved to dread. There's no longer ability to think you can hide. There's no longer the illusion that your secret thoughts, all the stuff you don't want out, is all of a sudden exposed before the watching world. And it's not secret before the Lord, for he has seen it all. He's marked it out. And all he has done is just laid it bare before the sight of men. And as you see that, if you're the wicked person, do you not become afraid? Do you not shudder to just think of what he knows? In fact, in your heart of hearts, you're suddenly aware of the fact that he knows it all. And nothing is hidden from his sight. But look at what this does. There's an actual production from this fear. The fear of God's judgment will produce something. He says, they will declare the work of God and they will consider what he has done. The result of God's judgment is actually rather simple. It will lead to the wicked recognizing God has done it. I can't explain it away. I can't make an excuse about it. God has done it. They are struck with this innate knowledge they can't shake off despite how hard they may try. And despite how hard they may try to shake off that innate knowledge, they will be forced to take it very, very seriously, perhaps even for the first time that day. They will deeply consider what God has done to the wicked. They will realize the error of their ways and that their end will be much the same and they will dread him all the more. But do you want to know the scary thing about that? It does not say they come to repentance. It does not say that they now believe in this one who is the judge. Well, certainly some of them might. That's the legitimate hope. 
That's the hope is that they all would. But it does not say that here. Things do not always end in such a way. I think of John 3 where Christ just lays out this reality that there is this judgment. Listen to what he says, right? He says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? For this reason, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. It's that simple. It's all about that revelation that they desperately do not want out. But the one who is safe in Christ, the reality is that that revelation happens, but God forgives and extends mercy. The reality, though, is that there's often a fear that does not end in repentance and faith, but a hiding. Some of you know this well. You've, you've been that guy before. You finally came into the light and your, your deeds were exposed and it was painful, wasn't it? But you were forgiven. But others are still hiding. Think even of Revelation, right? It describes that time, the end of all days. God's wrath has come against mankind. It's revealed from heaven. And he says, men will not cry out for mercy and forgiveness from God. Instead, what they do is they hide themselves in the caves and under the mountains. And they cry out and said, may the mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Still, even still, they would rather die and perish under his wrath and perish forevermore rather than come to him. They hate the light. If that happens at the end of all days, what's that? What's going to stop it from happening now, beloved? You see it all the time when death happens, right? The writer of Ecclesiastes says this, it's better to go into the house of mourning than to the halls of feasting so it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Why? This is the end of every man and he must consider it. He must take it to heart. He must recognize that at the end of all days, he will die. And then comes the judgment. But it doesn't take very long for people to get over that, does it? Do you know when it happens? 30 minutes after the funeral when everybody's stuffing their face. And we all do it. We move on, we plot our course straight to the gates of hell. For few consider it deeply enough to wonder, or rather to repent and believe. Some of you here have yet to put your faith in Christ. You've heard the gospel over and again. Perhaps you felt fear over the prospect of what that day of judgment will be for you but you have yet to cast yourself on the mercy of God because of fear, fear of your deeds being exposed. But yet if you come into the light, you find this miraculous thing where God actually forgives and absolves every sin. He washes you whiter than snow, though you may be scarlet. Little by little, though, moment by moment, every last one of us is hurtling toward the grave we are hurtling toward that day where there is a day of judgment. And unless you are safe in Christ, 
then what there will be is dread. Finally, fear will catch up to you. You cannot avoid it. You cannot delay it. There will be nothing but pure, agonizing dread for all eternity unless you cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. But there you will find peace. But even this is not the end of God's judgment or the results of God's judgment as the psalmist would have it here. There's one final result of God's judgment. It says it's not merely a time of terror when God judges a sinner and exposes all their deeds. It's a time of much joy for the righteous. Verse 10. He says God's righteousness will be extolled or praised. Notice what he says here. Look down with me. The righteous man will be glad in Yahweh and will take refuge in him, and all the upright in heart will glory. So the final result of God's judgment is joy. Joy. Do you see that? Actual joy. Many shrink back at the prospect of why joy would accompany God's judgment being poured out, but notice where his joy is found. It's not in the downfall of the wicked. He will be glad or take joy in Yahweh himself. So the question I ask is why? Why is he joyful over that? And the reasons are rather simple. For one, the threat of the wicked can no longer remain a danger for the people of God. In other words, the wicked are actually done away with. They can't do their evil deeds. They can't plot and scheme against him. They can't take his life. They can't take the life of the righteous or the innocent. Good triumphs over evil. And some of you hate that. You hate the reality that God's judgment actually will bring joy. But if you understand who God is, can it be any other way? There must be punishment for sin. R.C. Sproul always quipped, he was talking about people who were atheists, and he had somebody ask him a question. He goes, how do I get my friend to see objective morality, that there is good and evil? And he just quipped, steal his wallet. The point to him was simple. Don't actually steal the wallet, Christian. And the point to him, though, is that immediately he's going to find a sense of injustice, wrong done to him. And immediately he's going to want retribution in some way. He wants repayment. How much more so the God of this universe who controls all things and sets the rules Shall he not judge the earth and do what is right? Secondly, though, there is genuine peace on the day that evil is vanquished. And God has actually done all that is just and right. Think of all the martyrs in the history of the church. Think of the people who have literally had their blood shed in the name of Jesus Christ, those who have had their heads cut off for naming the name of Jesus Christ, for doing what we do on a Sunday you come in, you sing, you read the scriptures, you pray, and you hear the word. Think of all those people killed for that. They will be avenged. They will be vindicated. God will judge the evildoer. God will do what is right. The evildoer will no longer be able to do what they do best. So the righteous take joy in that reality. And yet the most important reason why the righteous will rejoice on that day is that they will rejoice in Yahweh. Again, if you've noticed that word Lord in your Bibles is in all capitals, 
And all that signifies to you is that the psalmist is using the divine name. He's using the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh, of course, speaks to God being eternal. He is the I am, right? I am that I am, that thing he said to Moses. He is the one true God and and all these things and more. And yet it is the personal name by which God revealed himself to his people. And so what David is doing here is as he's using Yahweh at this particular spot, he's invoking the personal name of God. Is it to say, this is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. This is the covenant-keeping God of Moses. This is the covenant-keeping God of the patriarchs. And he is my covenant-keeping God. He is saved before and he shall do so again. He makes good on his promises for he promises to judge the wicked and reward the righteous. And therefore, I shall glory in this God. The righteous, in other words, rejoice that God is their God. And he's faithful to what he said he will do. He is faithful to judge evil. He is faithful to do what is right. He upholds the righteous. He casts down the wicked just as he swore he would do. And then he says, as a result of that, even, there's more that happens. If you look back down, you can see it. The righteous will be moved to take refuge in him or trust in him all the more. And the upright in heart will glory, or as some of your translations put it, that they will boast. And so the natural question again is, what do they glory in? What do they boast in? Are they boasting that they are the ones who've been saved because of something that they've done? No, they're boasting in Yahweh. They boast in Yahweh because they found his favor, not as a result of anything special in them, but simply because God has chosen to reveal himself to them. He has made them his people. They will boast in God's goodness. They will boast of God's righteousness, for he is by no means willing to let the guilty go unpunished. But more than all of this, they will boast in God himself because to them, to the righteous, he is a source of protection and relief. In other words, he is not decisively a scary God to them. He is the one who saves. He is the one who forgives. And they will look at men and they say that there is no reason to fear the one who can kill and do no more. Why? I fear the one who casts both body and soul into hell. And to me, he's a safe God. So as we close with all of this today, What I want you to consider, and I mean deeply consider, is who do you fear? Do you fear man, the one who can kill the body? Or do you fear God, the one who can kill both body and soul? Matthew 10, 28, Christ says this to his disciples. He says, again, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The context surrounding this deals with what every last one of you would be afraid over. Every last one of you. The disciples are being told by Christ himself, you will go out and proclaim my name to the nations and you'll be tortured and you'll be killed on my account. And then he says, do not fear them. Fear God instead. In the midst of that same passage, though, a rather beautiful thing happens. He reminds the disciples that God cares for even the sparrows. Not one of them shall fall from the sky apart from his command. And thus the question is asked, will he not care all the much more for you? 
when I look at all of you today and I think of all the different ways fear is common, you might be afraid somebody is going to hurt you or your family or kill them. You might be afraid someone will ruin your reputation. You might be afraid that you can get fired, someone will trash your business, steal your stuff, take away your freedoms, or force you to do unconscionably horrible things. But chances are most of you are afraid of men in a far more subtle way. And what I mean by that is that for you, you're afraid to share the gospel in fear of being rejected. For you, you are afraid of standing up for what is right for fear of losing social credit. You're afraid of maybe even just disappointing people because you are a man pleaser. But the problem with the fear of man is that ultimately all you've done is forgotten who this God is. He is far more powerful and capable than anybody. Man is but a finite creature. And though he can be incredibly dangerous, God is far more dangerous if you stop to think about it. If you do not trust in this God, he is far more dangerous than any man ever has been and ever will be because he does not just take your life, he will take your life eternally. And yet, if you are safe in Christ, if you trust in this God, to you he's not a danger. He is your place of refuge and he does not just protect you and give you life. In Christ he gives you life eternally. And so I ask you at the end of all of this, One last time, who is it that you fear? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are incredibly merciful. None of us here deserve your grace or your kindness to us in Christ. And yet you have freely given your son that he not only took the due penalty for our sins, but he gave us his righteousness if we would simply believe And so I pray that as we go home today that we would never forget this wonderful reality. We would never stand upon our own laurels for the heart of man is desperately sick. Who can understand it? But Father, you look upon that and still in your mercy and grace give us a way in which we might be forgiven. And so I pray that we would not be a proud-hearted people and if there are unbelievers in our midst today that they would not be stubborn and hide but they would cast themselves and just simply come out into the light and find that though that moment may be painful, immediately you envelop us in your grace and love. There's no more pain. There's no more condemnation. There's freedom. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who trust in Christ already. You would help them to walk faithfully all the days of their lives. They would not fear man nor the consequences of what man may do but they would look to you in holy reverence and seek your will above all things. And they would trust that you are to them a safe refuge and that you will bring them into eternity safely. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.